page 966, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And now will you turn to page... 11.95, and you'll find two, uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary. Uh, I need uh, to start by saying Happy New Year to you all on this first Sunday of the year. It's a joy to be sharing with so many friends as we start the year together. Uh, 
I also need to apologise <clears throat> for my voice, and I may have a, an occasional bout of coughing. I'm just getting over a rather pernicious bug which laid me low over Christmas, so I apologise. Um, the redoubtable Mark Twain had a method of dealing with illness when he was speaking. He was called to be the guest of honour at a Civil War dinner. And uh, he sat there and they had their meal. And then one by one, uh, general after general got up before him to regale the audience with war uh, memories, no doubt. And so Twain, who was a, a notorious uh, drinker, by the time he got up, he'd had a few, basically, and was feeling a bit unwell. So he got up and he looked at the assembled throng of generals and brigadiers and, and so on, you know, uh, scrambled egg and medals from wall to wall. And he said, um, Alexander the Great is dead. Napoleon is no more and Wellington is under the sod. And to tell you the truth, I'm not feeling too good myself. And with that, he sat down. Well, the good news is that I've not been drinking this morning. Now, the bad news is you're going to have to put up with me for a few more minutes yet. So this Sunday offers us two opportunities for reflection. It's both the first Sunday of the year, allowing us a chance to look ahead, and it is Epiphany, encouraging us to look up. Well, what exactly is Epiphany? Well, the word itself uh, comes from two Greek words, the preposition epi and the verb phinon. And it can mean variously to shine upon, which I think is my favorite uh, uh, use, to shine upon or to reveal or to appear or manifest. If we look at a modern definition in Chambers, it reads, a sudden revelation or insight into the nature, essence or meaning of something. So it's a slightly different idea there, a secular idea if you like. And it's this last idea, the one captured by Chambers, I think, that is what the word conjures up in most minds today. The idea is of coming across a sudden revelation. Uh, the idea of something becoming suddenly clear. If a friend says, last night I had an epiphany, uh, they normally mean something suddenly became revealed to them. And at this time of year, it's usually the instructions on how to work their son's new PlayStation after he's gone to bed. When we come to look at the epiphany of Christ, which we celebrate today, applying only that particular meaning uh, can be misleading and dangerous. And, and as Christians, we need to be clear about exactly what epiphany is and how, uh, by and large, anyway, it operates. Traditionally, uh, the Roman Church and all the others that have come from it, uh, for, for us, the epiphany is the, the celebration of the revelation of Christ the King to the star-led Magi. The Eastern Church, incidentally, uh, actually celebrate in Epiphany the baptism of Christ, the revealing of Christ's uh, Godhead in his baptism by John. And, of course, there are other Epiphanies in the Gospel stories that the church, other churches celebrate too at this time. And this is quite right. Uh, the Epiphany of Christ was not a single moment, uh, but over years and covered many incidents and manifestations. So let's have a look at what that story in Matthew 2 tells us about Epiphany. Now we have to say right from the outset, and we need to be very clear about this, that God can choose to reveal himself however and whenever he chooses. God is not bound by some sort of rules of revelation. Far from it. 
God interposes himself on his creation at will. Having said that, the Epiphany story in Matthew 2 reveals some key truths, I believe, about how Epiphany generally works and is very instructive and helpful as we unpick uh, not only how we can encourage such a shining upon in our own lives, uh, but also in giving us a horizon to look out at as we gaze forward to 2008. So what we're going to do now is have a quick look at the story and draw out some of these principles, and then we'll have a quick look at why, indeed, we have this epiphany of Christ at all and how it can shape our thoughts for the coming year. So what does the story teach us? Well, who were the men uh, to which this epiphany occurred? Uh, The original Greek in Matthew 2 calls the men who came to visit Jesus magoi, which is simply the plural of magos. Uh, The English word magi is based on this Greek word, and it's the word that is most commonly used. The NIV uses the word magi. The text reveals that they had wealth and knowledge to travel, and they offered lavish gifts, and they also had knowledge about the stars. In fact, they were, in all probability, my researchers tell me, members of a religious hierarchy in ancient Persia and Media, which is the region roughly corresponding to Iran nowadays. So you can see it was quite a journey that they made. If so, that they were scholars and practitioners of astrology, divination and the interpretation of dreams. Their expertise in these subjects is the reason that they are often referred to as wise men. The Magi of Babylonia undoubtedly came into contact with the exiled Jewish priests living amongst them. Uh, During the exile, of course, there was a a strong and vibrant uh, Jewish community, but even after the various repatriations, there was still a Jewish community that lived on in Persia. And it's undoubted that as men of learning and wisdom, they would have cross-fertilized with the remainder of the Jewish people there. Uh, Through these acquaintances, the Magi could well have learned of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. Uh, They may well have have known about the somewhat cryptic Messianic star passage in in Numbers 24, of course. And this uh, might well explain why the astral phenomenon, the star described in the story, so fascinated the Magi of the Gospel narrative, and why it prompted their journey, and why they ascribe it to a Jewish king. It's a very particular use of language, if you notice, in verse 2. We have seen his star in the east. Long before they arrive, they understand that this star points very specifically at a particular person, a particular Jewish king. So while the rest of the New Testament uh, offers no more explanation to the Magi, other ancient literature can come to our aid at this point in helping us understand a bit more about who they were. Uh, From the Jewish historian Josephus and the Greek historian Herodotus and the writings of Strabo as well, you get a clearer picture of the people called the Magi. The first ones uh, would appear uh, in history about 7th century BC in the Median Empire, and it's possible that we see examples of them in Daniel 2 and also in Jeremiah uh, 39. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, they were an ancient priestly caste dwelling within the Parthian Empire. They practiced astrology, which of course at this time was a hybrid of what we would now call astronomy uh, and astrology. They were adepts at interpreting dreams, and we possibly get that from the Daniel 2 passage. 
Also at the time, just prior to the birth of our Lord, the Magi significantly uh, formed the upper house of the council of the Magistanes, which were the, um, the, the, the ones whose duties in the government of the Parthian Empire um, were to, to make the kings. They were understood, in other words, to be kingmakers. It was part of their governmental duties. Now, this would certainly explain Herod's extreme reaction to their presence and the news that they brought. Here are governmentally approved kingmakers from a huge power in the east turning up and announcing they wanted to worship a new king right under his nose. And it would also explain their significance to all who heard the story that Matthew tells. They would have understood that here were kingmakers come to worship a new king. It would put the messianic stamp on the child of Bethlehem. So if it's ever occurred to you to ask why it is that in the middle of this very Jewish narrative we have men coming from the east to be involved, then maybe here is one answer. These were particular men called as kingmakers to recognize and to announce the birth of a king. That's what everyone would have understood their presence to mean. So what does the story, their story, reveal to us particularly about Epiphany? Well, four quick points. First of all, Epiphany is not sudden and out of the blue. For the Magi, there's a whole history of training and learning and understanding, and then there's an arduous journey. Far from being sudden, the Magi had an epiphany that was the culmination of years of study and training in action. When they worshipped Christ, it was no accidental meaning, no happening upon. They had worked for that event. They deliberately aimed to find the king, and of course, they found more than they bargained for. They found the very king of the universe. And that is consistent with the rest of the gospel stories. If you look at people like Anna, to whom uh, the baby was revealed as the Messiah, she had been going for years. This was no accidental meeting. And if you look at John, when he baptized Jesus, he didn't accidentally come upon Christ. Again, it was a result of years of training and obedience. Now, you can sort of find examples of apparent out-of-the-blue epiphanies. I'm thinking of, say, Samuel in the Old Testament, where he suddenly hears the voice of God, and Paul, possibly, in the New Testament, on the road to Damascus, suddenly being struck by a revelation of God. But you could well argue that Samuel, in fact, was spending his life, even as a boy, cultivating the possibility of that epiphany by serving in the temple, being a servant to God. And of course, Paul, even though his life was heading in the wrong direction at that point, was also dedicated to service. He had studied scripture. He had made it his point to be theologically equipped. And in fact, he would have seen his life up till that point as being dedicated to the service of God by actively stamping out this heresy called Christians. So both Samuel and Paul, even though they have had an apparent sudden meeting with God, are clearly dedicated to the possibility of that meeting 
Their lives are focused towards it. So despite what Chambers tells us about a sudden revelation, epiphanies do seem rarely to be bolts from the blue. They're normally products of people striving to place themselves in God's service or in the way of God. And the other side of this coin, which is our second point, is that it is often a longed-for and worked-for thing. Hard work and obedience to God's leading is part and parcel of epiphany. If we simply wait for God's revealing, we are unlikely to get it. The Magi got up off their cushions and got onto their camels, and they kept on at it. When they didn't find what they were seeking at Jerusalem, they moved on. And afterwards, of course, they were obedient too and avoided returning to Jerusalem. This is the response. Their journey and what happened afterwards is the response of men used to the discipline of listening out to God, of looking out for divine intervention in their lives. And again, the same if we look at the Gospels. It happens time and time again when God reveals himself to people through Jesus. It is mostly as a result of the fact that these people have been undertaking a disciplined search. Look at Simeon. He's obedient. He goes to the temple when asked, and God is revealed to him through the baby. The same for John and the disciples and all who followed Christ. So those first two points are two sides of the same coin. It's not sudden. It's often the result, mostly the result of a lot of work, and it is also the result of obedience to God and putting ourselves in his way. Our third point that this story reveals is that God reveals himself to us in the ordinary. Uh, For the Magi, of course, they found God not in the palace of Jerusalem where they first went, a natural spot to go to look for a king, uh, but in a house, probably a very humble one in Bethlehem. And it's worth just noting in passing that it's not the stable that they go to. Matthew is quite clear that it's a house. For a start off, we know that the the baby, uh, Christ, would have been between 40 days and two years uh, when the Magi appeared. We know that because, of course, of what happened immediately afterwards. We're told that Joseph is told by God to get out, to go away, and he leaves the very night he gets that message. And so we know from Luke, of course, that Mary and Jesus have gone to the temple at the 40-day presentation and purification moment. So we know from putting those two stories together that the baby must be at least 40 years old. And we know from Herod's attempts to make sure he covered himself by ascertaining exactly when the star had appeared that the baby was under two years old because that was the limit that Herod put on it, presumably to be safe, to make sure he got his baby. So the child is between 40 days you know, a month and a half or so, and two years, somewhere in there. Now, however generous the, um, the innkeeper, it's unlikely he'd have been happy to have people squatting in his stable for all that period of time, and it's unlikely that Mary and Joseph would have wanted to stay there a moment longer than they uh, needed to, despite our romanticised versions of it. So the visit of the Magi comes to a place that is hugely prosaic, the home of a very young carpenter and his even younger wife and their small child in the middle of a village uh, in Judah. So for us, too, 
Uh, God will reveal himself in unexpected ways and in ordinariness. If we expect him only in our Jerusalems, and and we all have them, uh, it may be for us that that's church, for instance, uh, we risk missing him altogether. For those that seek him, God can reveal himself whenever and wherever they are. The Magi sought and they found and worshipped where God was, not where they might have thought him more likely to be. Our fourth point is that if we wish for a personal epiphany, a shining upon uh, by God, it is vital to be open to God's communication with us. For the Magi, that communication was a star and a dream. Uh, It could be those for us. Um, It is probably more likely to be something else. It's probably more likely to be our day-by-day Uh, communication with God through our prayer, through our scripture reading, through our worship, through our relationships, through the whole business of being part of God's church here on earth. But whatever way it is, unless our communication channels with God (coughs) are wide open and set to listen, we will struggle to experience God shining upon us. The Magi brought a lifetime's discipline and devotion to their search. But of course, ultimately, the crucial element in its success was their willingness to be led to Christ. And we too need to understand that we have to be led to Christ. We must put ourselves in the way of being led, open and available for leading. And that's not a one-off event. That's a lifetime's journey. So, is this just a pretty story? Is it just a nice feeling for us to have this personal experience of Christ? We have to ask why the epiphany happens. We have to ask why for the Magi and why for us. And this is where our passage in 2 Timothy can help us. We find an answer here. Epiphany happens, says Paul, so that the gospel, the good news of God's incarnation and the kingdom of God being made available here and now can be delivered to all humanity, all God's children. God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing, and here's the word, the epiphania of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The epiphania of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, has been revealed. The epiphany of Christ is God's intrusion into time to incarnate his love and desire for eternal communion with his creation. It is the human and practical revelation of God's grace that destroys death and brings eternal light. That is why the Magi were drawn to travel to a house in Bethlehem to worship a child, the Son of God. So says Paul to Timothy. That's why it happened. So do not be ashamed of this gospel, says Paul. 
this epiphania that lights the universe up for all time. Cherish it. If necessary, suffer for it. But whatever you do, know what you believe. Understand it. And be a herald for it. When God shines upon us, reveals himself to us, how can we be silent? I wonder what the Magi reported when they returned to Persia. We know that they gave kingly gifts and worshipped the boy Jesus. They had experienced God shining upon them. So they clearly felt their journey had been fulfilled. And given that, I'm certain that they would have spread the news on their return. Because it is a mark of epiphany, of revelation, of God's light breaking through to bathe us. That the experience is such that we cannot help but share it. It's the testimony of God's revelation to people from Genesis onwards. It's the testimony of 2,000 years of Christianity. When God is revealed to the human heart, the light spreads around them. From Simeon's nunc dimittis to Mother Teresa's daily living of the gospel and all the experience of the very ordinary saints like you and me in between. When God shines upon us, it does not and cannot remain a purely private matter. So as we look forward into 2008, may we dedicate ourselves to seek a personal epiphany through discipline and obedience, for that search will surely be rewarded. It's my prayer that 2008, for all of us, will be a year of journey for us that reveals Christ to us and those around us. A year of epiphany given out of our love for and openness to God. Let's never forget that God's shining on us through the incarnation is an act of salvation for the whole world. And that that shining on us carries with it the intrinsic necessity to worship and to preach through our lives and through our words. May 2008 be a year that you experience God shining upon your life and so are enabled to share that incarnational love with those around you. Amen.